Shalom, my friends. Before we start today's episode, I want to say a few words about what's been going on in our world and especially in the United States this past few weeks. It's really difficult to put into words how I feel, combinations of shame, rage, heartbreak, and a vague sense of hope that underlies it all. The support I know that we can give to each other as a community, even as our institutions fail to protect us. And it's hard to put into words because it's a feeling. For me, I think tefillah in these days is a vessel for whatever it is I'm feeling. Tefillah is a response to life. My prayer then moves through the words of my ancestors, reminding me that I am not alone in this struggle. You know, today during my weekday Amidah, I'm here at camp with these kids, and it strikes me, and it struck me today over and over again, that we keep praying for a better world to come, and we know that it must be possible. It is said, and Josh mentioned this on the last episode we aired, that we're discouraged from praying for things that we know can't happen. Which means that if we're praying for something to happen, then it could happen. And so tefillah in that way is both a vessel for my rage and my sadness and my frustration, but also for my hope. Rabbi Sager, Zichronoli Vracha, said that the bracha, the blessing formula, especially as it functions in the liturgy, is a reminder that God has done something before, which means it could happen again. And to me, that gives me a sense of hope. We experience your blessing, Holy One, Redeemer of our people, which means if that is a name that we call the Holy One, that is possible in our world. It can be very easy to feel powerless. And that is a feeling that is worth feeling. But for me, Tfilah reminds me that in fact, I am connected to a people, to a community, and to a universe. And that there is more that we could do always to hold our institutions of power accountable because there are things that could actually change and to continue to take care of each other. We balance in Judaism. I think I've brought this up before because it keeps playing over in my mind. We balance the gratitude and the awe of our tefillot. We balance the accepting of the world as it is, as we are encouraged to do on Shabbat with the holy rage of the prophets and the pieces of liturgy from our heritage that cry out for help. We have both. We can find joy in our everyday lives and we can hold our broken hearts. We can do both of those things, but only if we do them together. So friends, I just wanted to share that from my heart because I am with you. I am here. And perhaps 
our tefillah is with us too. And perhaps I think the Holy One is with us too. Now here's today's episode. There is a spark it can't ignite And all you gotta do is bring the light Cause a new light shine, cause a new light shine Time to get on up, say tradition is mine Cause a new light shine Shalom everyone! Welcome to another episode of the Light Lab Podcast. My name is Eliana Light, and I am coming to you from Ramah Sports Academy. Yes, summer is in full swing, and I am here at sports camp. What am I doing at sports camp? Coaching lacrosse, of course. No, absolutely not. I'm doing tefillah. What do you think I'm doing? I get to sing and pray with these amazing campers and counselors almost every day, and it's pretty great. If you know anything about me, listener, you know that I really love tefillah, and that is why. I am really excited to share this interview with you. If you've listened to the show before, you have probably heard Ellen, Josh, and or I reference the My People's Prayer Book series. It has been an indispensable resource to our tefillah teaching before the podcast, and especially as we're putting the show together. We learn so much. It is such an incredible tool. And when Ellen said, you know, I'm friends with Larry. I could connect you. We were overjoyed. Rabbi Lawrence A. Hoffman was ordained in 1969 and received his PhD in 1973. So we really should be calling him Dr. Rabbi or Rabbi Doctor. He is a professor emeritus now at the New York campus of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, where he served for almost half a century teaching on liturgy, ritual, worship, spirituality, theology, American religion, and synagogue transformation. He's really one of the foremost scholars of liturgy in the United States, and we're really, really lucky to get to talk to him. He's written or edited 45 books to date, incredibly impressive, including the My People's Prayer Book series, the follow-up My People's Passover Haggadah series. There's a series called Prayers of Awe on the I holiday liturgy, which is incredible. And he's also done writing around rethinking synagogue. In 1994, he was one of the co-founders of Synagogue 2000, which then became Synagogue 3000, an initiative to help us think differently about what synagogue should be and can be moving into the future. He has taught at so many different places. He was the visiting professor for many years at University of Notre Dame. And he has even worked with the United States Navy to create a course on worship for Navy chaplains. He is currently retired, living in the greater New York area, and continuing to do this incredible work. He has a blog that we'll link to called Life and a Litter Liturgy. And I can't tell you how thrilled I am to share this interview that Ellen and I did with Rabbi Lawrence A. Hoffman. Larry, welcome to the Light Lab. It's so great to have you. Thank you very much, Eliana. It's wonderful to be here with you and with Ellen. With Ellen. Thank you so much, Ellen, for connecting us. We quote your books and thoughts all the time, so it's so great that we finally get you in the room, in the Zoom, as it were. And as we like, I want to start by asking you about your tefillah journey. 
What was your relationship to tefillah as a child, as a young person? I was raised in a very small Jewish community in Canada, southern Ontario. The only synagogue in town was Orthodox. And so, of course, we all belonged to it. It was unthinkable in those days that you wouldn't belong to the synagogue, whether you went or not. My parents were serious Jews, but they were more like conservative, probably, though we didn't really know the difference. We were all just Jewish and went to the same place. And our rabbi was Orthodox, though it was an Orthodox shul. And I was a shul kid. I loved going there. So I went pretty regularly on Shabbat morning. My parents had to work. We didn't have very much money. They worked on Shabbat, but they would drop me off regularly. And I can remember dearly loving whatever happened there. All the old men thought I was terrific. Eventually, I actually was taught by the rabbi to lead services. So I was the, I was the shliach tibur, and I didn't know that word, of course, but I, was the, I knew how to lead services for my bar mitzvah. I davened the shacharit service uh, from scratch completely and thought nothing of it. It was wonderful. What do you think drew you to synagogue at such a young age? I wish I know. I don't know. Maybe I was, I think of myself as kind of an old soul who was born as an adult, but in a child's body. And so I just loved being there. There was something about the, the rightness of it. Don't know really why. I wish I could tell you. It's not as if I loved long service, mind you. And on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I was very happy to skip out. At some point, when we got to uh, Yisker, of course, in those days, we were not allowed to say if we had living parents. So we would be shunted out of the room. But Yisker in, in an Orthodox duel is very, very short. So you could just walk outside and walk right back in, and you'd probably be just on time. But I didn't walk just outside. I walked blocks and blocks and blocks away and stayed away for as many hours as I could. And the service was endless. I never did like long services. That gives me such great joy, Larry, to hear you say that, that, that <laughs> even you can find certain services rather on the lengthy side. And do you recall, I'm so curious, if, if the feeling of like leading as a young person and, and, and leading the davening, which is a style that many of us don't use so much today. Well, I certainly loved it then. I felt very proud. And I even thought perhaps I would uh, be an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, this lasted only two or three weeks. But uh, as I put on fill-in and daven each morning by myself, and I soon realized that I actually didn't like that at all. It didn't mean anything to me. Uh, but I always knew that I was kind of interested in the community gathering and something about the noise and spirit and the togetherness and the rightness of it, too. You talk about, talk about uh, services that are too long, however, that's still one of our problems. Uh, and I have not developed any more patience, I think, with services that are long, overly so. And that don't take into, into consideration the people who are there. Uh, we often mistake, and we still do. It's our problem today. We mistake our comfort zone with everyone else's. I, I know I'm jumping ahead in the story, but uh, I don't have a congregation as a rabbi. I'm a professor. I'm a PhD. I, I study prayer, and so I read about it. So I felt right. I belong to synagogues, of course. But I go to the high holidays, for example, in one synagogue or another. It doesn't matter which one. And sometimes I sit at the back because I don't get there really early. You know how everyone gets there early, the regulars, and they fill up all the really good seats. And I never liked getting there that early. So I would arrive with everybody else. No one knew who I was. I'd go sit in the back like other people. And I would look around me. And it's such a different view to be sitting back there with all those kind of non-educated Jews. 
instead of the front where you have the, the, in, the inner circle of congregants. And you look around and you see, what are they doing? Well, mostly they're just doing nothing. You got a prayer book so, sort of open, sort of not. They kind of look at the ceiling. Someone tells them what page you're on. They move to that page. Maybe there's an English reading. They follow it. But mostly they don't know what's going on. They're just putting in their time there. So I'm very concerned about the way we uh, take cognizance of the people for whom we are leading this service. It's not ourselves, and it shouldn't be. In fact, I really don't like very much the current fetish with the prayer leader having to have a spiritual experience themselves. And they, people say to me, gee, if I, I got to pray myself or else I can hardly lead it for everyone else. I think that's nonsense. I think if you get the prayer experience yourself, that's gravy. But we're there for other people, it seems to me. But I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. It does sound like when you were a child, it was about the community aspect. It was about the sense of accomplishment from having learned all of those pieces, which was certainly the case when I was a kid definitely something to be proud of. I'm wondering where God was for you in all of this. And if there were experiences or teachers in your young adulthood that changed your understanding of what tefillah is or could be. I don't think I looked seriously at God or anything theological until relatively late in, in my development. My rabbi talked about God, of course, but I didn't give much thought to it. And my parents hardly ever talked about God. Uh, my father was a budding reconstructionist. By that, I mean, we could not afford a lot of books. My father liked to read. My uncle was a rabbi who had graduated from JTS and was a student of Mordecai Kaplan. And he sent my father a, a, a subscription to the reconstructionist. And every two weeks, this rather boring, looked like a, a newsprint, little tiny journal arrived with four or five articles listed on the front. My father read it from cover to cover. So it was clear that he was not what you'd call a, a God believer in the sense of a traditional kind of God. I knew that. I don't know what my mother believed. We just never talked about that sort of thing. In those days, we were part of what was I call the Jewish ethnic family. Uh, we were ethnics. Every Jew was supposed to belong to the shul because that's what Jews did. And don't forget, I was born in, during World War II, 1942. So after the war, our city filled up with people as it were actually from Germany because my city, though called Kitchener, was originally called Berlin until World War I. It was a very German city. My father said when he moved there, he actually saw the, the Nazis marching down the main street. Uh, he, he said the best thing that ever happened was when the war broke out, because he found out that half the Nazis marching weren't actually Nazis, but they were Mounties, mounted police who had infiltrated the group, and that was that. But there was a lot of German spoken on the streets of my town. And so we knew we were Jews. I, never, I did not ever find a great deal of anti-Semitism, despite the na nature of the town. My father was well-respected, and he, they got along with everybody, but we knew that we were Jews. That ethnic kind of Jewish life uh, was the same in America. You didn't have to live in Canada, and you didn't have to live in a, in a German neighborhood or a German town. 
Jews knew they were Jews. And don't forget, until after World War II, uh, we Jews were not allowed into country clubs. We weren't allowed into, into uh, businesses. There was a lot of quiet anti-Semitism. You, you know, you can read that book, Gentleman's Agreement uh, by Laura Hobson, and you can see what it was like back then. As long as you think of yourself as an ethnic group, you realize that you're part of a worldwide people trying to build Israel in those days, then you don't think too much about God. Most of us came from Eastern Europe. Jews in Eastern Europe didn't think much about God. They'd mostly given up on it, I think. They were ethnics. That's what they were. So I didn't think much about God even until I got to Hebrew Union College, probably. In Hebrew Union College, I was fortunate to study with uh, Professor Borowitz, Eugene Borowitz, who became a mentor of mine throughout my life. And he was, a, he was an ardent God believer, and he made us think about God for sure. But it didn't really take. That is to say, I thought about it, but I didn't really have strong views on it. I was too busy with other things, learning Talmud and doing the things that rabbis do, and then finally pursuing my doctorate. The big change that occurred came when I, moved, when I began lecturing uh, partly, uh, first just one lecture, and then summer courses at the University of Notre Dame. And then they started asking me whether Jews believe. And I discovered I had to believe something. That's where, I first was, that's where I first was introduced to spirituality. Somebody asked a question in the audience at a public lecture I gave about Jewish spirituality of the Seder. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? And uh, that night I went out to uh, a faculty club with her. Turns out she was a nun in the community. She goes on faculty, and uh, I asked her, what, what did you mean by that? I, I've actually never heard the word spirituality used seriously. No Jews were talking about it. No one. And she explained to me her Catholic spirituality. I was very moved by it. And I thought, I have to learn about this. But the, only then did I really start thinking seriously about God. Larry, when I met you, it was the summer of 1973, and I was a camper at the URJ Kutz camp, and you were one of my teachers. And to hear, and I guess you had, you were, had graduated from HUC at that point. You were already ordained, right? I was ordained and actually had my doctorate by then, I think. Okay. I think I got my doctorate mm -hmm. in, in June of 73. Right. So here you've gone in, in your early adulthood from the Orthodox upbringing in Canada to my meeting you as a reform rabbi. Right. And we've got the song leaders and the guitars and the poetry and the dance and the visual art going on during tefillah. Um, what, what did you make of, of all that? Such a difference and such contemporary stuff going on. What was your take on that? Well, I'd had some experience with Reformed prayer. I, I, during my, my college days, I worked my way through college by running two youth groups and teaching in two different religious schools, one conservative and one reform. So I knew something about Reformed prayer, but the prayer I knew about was union prayer book, rather quiet, the classical reform model where nobody talks and sings and everybody just stands together and sits together and someone drones on in the front and there was a voice that apparently belonged to someone called the cantor that you heard but it, it didn't mean much to me uh that i did not become a reformed jew because i loved the worship service i became a reformed jew for other reasons when i went to kutz camp for the first time 
uh, I cannot tell you the impact that had on me. The first time I had any experience of joyful singing. It's the first time I had the notion that a whole community could be singing other than droning in the kind of orthodox way, which I like too, mind you. But just to, to, to see the, the look on the faces of the people at camp and to, to actually watch the song leaders, who in those days was Mary Arian and Doug Mishkin, and to watch the enormous capacity they had to bring out the best of people and to raise the level of, of uh, the level of understanding of oneself. No, that's wrong. To, to raise the sense of depth that people had within them by giving them that communal experience. That was one of the formative experiences of my life. That's what pops into my head when you were speaking before about the leaders not having yeah. an idea of what's going on in the congregation. Right. And that this was a time when it seemed like the leaders were really in touch with who, you know, Dalif Nemiata Omed, you got to know who you're standing in front of. Of course, I know that originally means something different, but for prayer leaders, I think it's a great advice. It's fabulous advice. And I, I discovered then what, what I, though I didn't have a word for it yet, don't forget, I still didn't know the word spirituality. Nobody was talking about it yet. But I had the sense that there was something there. And I could see also the importance of music. I, I never really appreciated that. Now, mind you, when I was 10 years old, I was in a boys' choir for the high holidays. Uh, Mr. Pearl, who was mostly the shochet, you know, he slaughtered the food for us. He doubled as the chazan because he had a decent voice. And he collected eight or nine of us boys. And so I learned how to be a boys' choir for the high holidays for him. So I did appreciate some sense of music, and I liked listening to Mr. Pearl. I actually later developed a, a great fondness for Chazanut, which I still have. And I have a high regard for the Orthodox service, don't get me wrong. By the way, I've also developed a high regard for the classical reform service. So I, I matured, thank God, you know. I realized that there are many different ways for people to pray. And I've gone through many of them. I was at the Orthodox service. I was at, I have appreciated now the classical reform service very much now. And I like to go to it sometimes. But then at camp, I discovered this new service that was just in the making. It, it was not yet widespread. You remember that, Alan. In fact, there was an objection in the CCAR by many rabbis that they shouldn't send kids to Kutz camp because they would only learn this music that was coming out of the camp. And since that wasn't the music of the synagogue yet, that would turn kids off from the synagogue. I couldn't believe that, but I, I saw that. Uh, and I was not about kind of believing in prayer. When I taught at Notre Dame, I felt obliged to go to church. I mean, they had an 11 o'clock mass. And I'd say, oh, I better go. And I'd say, wait, you don't have to go to this. You know, but I'd say, well, you know, everybody's going, I don't know. And I actually did go quite frequently. And I got to appreciate the Catholic kind of service as well. Eventually, I joined something called North American Academy of Liturgy. And that was probably the most significant part of my education, all in all. Uh, this is an organization started after Vatican II, which was the meeting of the Vatican in 1962 to 1965, to determine how Catholicism could move into the modern world. And it changed its worship completely. 
and the Catholics and Protestants who decided that they wanted to change worship formed an organization, and I was the only Jewish member. And so I was in many conversations with them. And some of us decided that we would meet independently as a little group. That is to say, this organization had not papers that people delivered to one another. It wasn't like that. We prayed together and we studied together. And I studied in a small group that wanted to learn ritual. So for about 10 or 15 years, we taught each other ritual studies, though we didn't know it yet that that was the title because it hadn't come into being. But, but that's how I learned all about ritual. And that meant that I had to appreciate the many ways in which people do it. So I've been very, very fortunate to be exposed to many different ways of prayer. So through all of these incredible encounters with this new style of praying at Kutz Camp, to the people that introduced you to spirituality as a term, to your cohort of other religious thinkers of other traditions, how did your understanding of the goal or purpose of tefillah change, both prayer in general as a human and universal thing, as expressed by different religions, and tefillah as a particularly Jewish thing. What was your thinking about, what was the point of all of that? When I went to HUC, no, I'll start earlier. In my, in my childhood, prayer was just something you went to. I didn't ask any questions about it. That's what Jews did. So I went Shabbos morning, and I went on, you can hear me say Shabbos, because that's how we pronounced it back then. And I went in the high holidays, because that's what you did. I had no idea about liturgy as being something broad. We made Kiddush in our home. We lit candles. We kept Shabbat and ritually in that sense. I had never, on the other hand, heard of Havdalah. This was something new to me. I didn't discover that until much later in life. It was a limited repertoire that we had in our home. It's what my parents had learned and what we therefore did. And so prayer in those days was done just because that's what you do. The next step probably is when I went to HUC. And then I learned all about prayer as a mitzvah. I had never heard of that before. As far as I was concerned, a mitzvah was a Yiddish word about doing a nice thing for somebody. I didn't know such a thing as a mitzvah, which is different than a mitzvah, sort of. So then I learned that, oh, prayer is a mitzvah, and we had all these mitzvot, and we had Talmud and codes and so on and so forth. I did not take to that. Um, I know that there's been research done over the last 15 years or so that has demonstrated the fall off in Jewish appreciation for the word mitzvah. Arnie Eisen, recall, saying, and then eventually uh, a book was written by him and by Stephen Cohen. And the book was called, I think, The Sovereign Self, something like that. And one of the things they said in there is that Jews don't like the idea of religious duty. And they don't like the idea of a mitzvah, really. And so, in fact, it was no surprise to me that that appeal would only hold with those who had bought into the system of mitzvot as something necessary. A good, of course, Orthodox Jews still follow that. And I actually in high, have a high regard for their ability to do so. And I like going to their services where, uh, you know, I can, I, can, I can appreciate the rationale behind it and I can identify with it for, for a period of time. But in my own life, that's never worked with me. I spent a lot of time in my life trying to think of what, what language means and how language is used. 
and I recognized it at HUC, for example, or us on the screen. We live in a language bubble. So we use language all the time as if everybody else knows that we're talking about and agrees with it, even though they don't. And even though many of us don't think about it at all, it's just how we talk. So I, I, I never kind of understood or took the idea of prayers and mitzvah. So when I first started studying it, it was probably my first uh, major talk after I gave it at the at a, a then UAHC, now the URJ Biennial. I was a new professor. It probably wasn't 19, probably wasn't 73, Alan, when I first met you, or maybe a year or two later, I don't know. Um, and I gave a talk called The Liturgical Message, and it's now been printed in a book called uh, Gates of Understanding, Volume 1. It's hard to get. But, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's in libraries anyway. The book was published by the UAHC at the time, I think. At any rate, I said there that, uh, that prayer was primarily a means of identification, the way we identify as Jews. It was clear to me already, though I haven't, hadn't studied the academics of it yet, but it was clear to me that when Jews came to pray, they came to identify as Jews. And that's why in crises to this day, we still come to the synagogue. You want to say, well, I'm Jewish. I want to show up for this as a Jew. Now, we, there may be other places we show up as well. But if we were in person now, let's take the war against Ukraine going on now, Putin's war in Ukraine. I have no doubt that more people would come to services now because they want to, they want to respond by supporting Ukraine and by opposing Putin and saying we believe in what is right. And they want to do it as Jews. We want to do it with the right community. So we belong to many communities, but our religious community for many Jews still counts, even though you don't see them very often. That's why they come on the high holiday. Here I am. It's putting in your, you know, suiting up and showing up or at the right time and right place and saying, I'm, I'm still Jewish. This is my community still. So I began to see prayer as, as the way in which we give a message to people about their Jewish identity. And that came about a variety of ways, but I still think that's primary. And uh, I now try to understand whether we are doing it well or poorly and what's involved as our community shifts and we become no longer ethnic, but we become now exceptionally diverse. And so our Jewish, our Jewish identity is now uh, not what it was at the time when I first saw that. But I still think of prayer as an identity, uh, an, a form of identity formation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to believing in God. And, and, and I think in terms of a mitzvah, there's something we should do. I, I'm in favor of that. But I'm trying to put myself, as I told you before, in the mind of the people out there sitting in, out somewhere in left field on high holy days. You know what I mean? And they're just sitting there with a the prayer book. And what are they thinking? So they're not there because they believe it's a mitzvah and they have thought to do it. Although, yeah, they ought to do it, but they don't think of it as, as something commanded by God, certainly. And they may or may not have some views about God that we never asked them. We don't really know. Mm. Larry, in that light, can you say something maybe about the the liturgy and the Sidur? Like, what are people really looking at? I <clears throat> have heard you once upon a time say that the liturgy was possibly like a political 
platform because different movements come out with different versions of the CDOR and it's basically our leaders telling us what they think we believe or ought to believe. And then also more recently, but still not yesterday, have read your writings about spiritual translation and about what one does with the Hebrew and how it's important to not only look at a literal translation of these Hebrew words, but to translate them in a way that they are still relevant for our lives today. Can you talk about the liturgy yeah. and the Sidor? And certainly I hope that takes us to Minhagami and how that entire project started, perhaps. That is a big set of questions, Alan. But they're, that's right. They're... We have we have fifteen seconds. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. I've already wasted five of them. First of all, a political platform. I don't know that I'd use political anymore, especially because political now has ramifications in a in a divided country uh, where po politics means they're either on this side or that. And I don't mean it that way. I never did. Moreover, politics seems to imply a sort of action you know what 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 do you think about immigrants on the border what do you think about black lives matter so on and so forth and and it becomes politicized easily as different groups in the country uh, take opposite sides on any of those questions but i do think when i talk about identity that's the same thing as what you're implying that is to say the prayer service the experience is an exercise in what we do is believe now, because we are coming from various positions, there are conservatives, there are liberals, there are all sorts of people, the prayer book and the experience of prayer handles these questions without going into any detail. At no point, for example, will the prayer book tell you exactly what they think we ought to do and become an argument in terms of detail, because then you have to stop. You'd say, wait, I agree with that part, but not this part. Wait, what do you mean by that? We don't go in that detail, but we use various general descriptions of responsibility, of Jewish responsibility, of the great values that our tradition maintains, and we use certain words that are the, 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 that the catch-all phrases for things that resonate with us. So we'll say, justice, justice you shall pursue. Well, everyone believes in justice now. We say, okay. Now, that doesn't tell us what we mean by justice on the border. But prayer tells us that at least we should aim for whatever justice is. We walk away feeling that we now are on the camp that believes in justice. And that we now have a line as well. So you find yourself at a cocktail party or something, and people say, what do you Jews believe? And someone says, well, justice is justice we should pursue. And now you sound like Yoda. And you say, where did I get that idea? Well, you got it from the prayer service. I once interviewed a woman who told me that she, she had lit Shabbos candles every single week. Why did she like Shabbat candles so firmly? And why was she so proud of it? She was like 84, 85 years old. She'd never missed a Friday night. And I said, what does this mean to you? And she said, well, light is a symbol of the divine. Where did she get that? Union prayer book, page seven. She had been reading the Union prayer book so long, she thought, that was her idea. So we integrate what the prayer book says if we understand the language. And she understood English, and that was the beauty of a poetic English. English has to be poetic. I'm getting to your second question now. It's not just what the prayer book says, though. It's also other things, kind of subtle things in the service that matter. 
somebody loves the feel of a prayer book. And then the feel of that prayer book becomes part of their identity. They pick it up. They love it. There are people, for example, who never wanted to get rid of the union prayer book because they had used it for so long. They loved it. I had the sense that as long as they loved the prayer book, the way they love their own diary, we could then think of the prayer book as a diary entry of the Jewish people. And when we write new prayers, we are adding to our diary. When we pick it up and pour our emotion into it, that becomes our diary. A diary is who you are at your deepest level. And if you can express that through prayer and through the prayer book, then of course, you're saying to yourself again, identity, look, this is my diary. The Jewish people is my people. Here I am saying what I, Jews have said forever, even if they haven't said it forever. So I think the, the, the go back to why we pray, I think very much why we pray is to find a sense of a diary in this larger picture. So it's not just our personal diary, but our personal diary means a whole lot more. And we draw sustenance from whatever is going on in that service to say, yeah, that's who I really am at my, at my greatest depth. Translation. So, so I graduated from HUC uh, in, 19, in 1973. You, the, the new Gates of Prayer was already in congregants' hands. I had written an article about, uh, rather, a letter to the editors about it, but I wasn't on that committee. I was, however, on the committee of Gates of Repentance. And then I was on the liturgy committee for the next several years, many years, actually. And there the question of translation emerged. Now, you may remember that originally we did not translate prayers necessarily uh, word for word. Some prayers were translated. But some prayers were not. Instead, you got a general sense of what the paragraph had to say. It was more poetic. Now, there are different ways of thinking about translation. It may be that word for word is not what you should do anyway. It should be at least phrase for phrase. But we weren't even doing that. We would just have something that gave you the sense of what the Hebrew meant. We heard from people who, who said, this is terrible. I want to know exactly what I'm saying in the Hebrew. And so we got to translate it exactly. So we started putting a little tiny circle in front of those prayers that were not literal translations to let people know, oh, this isn't the real translation. But who notices little, a little circle? I mean, what good is that? People still said, you know, everyone has a right to know. I don't actually know that a lot of our people believe that. I think a lot of our rabbis and cantors believed that people believed that. They heard from a very specific slice of the congregation. One of our problems is that we play to, as it were, only the regulars who come to our synagogue and are always there on Friday night or Shabbat morning. They're the people who we know the names of them. They come to everything. They tell us our sermon is good. They like the way we sing. And indeed, they're, they're, they're people who love to pray. They're at best 10% of the congregation, adults, probably fewer than that. Whether the average person who comes on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur cares whether it's a little translation or not, I rather doubt. They don't give it a thought. But there was a belief at the time that we had to be literal. I objected to that. I said that the meaning of the Hebrew is not simply the words literally understood. The meaning of the, the, meaning of the, of the Hebrew is the entire experience of saying it. 
I never knew what any of the prayers meant when I was a kid going to the Orthodox services, but I loved it. I didn't care what I was covening. I, someone said to me, oh, it's a prayer for peace. Okay, that's nice, but I didn't really care. At any rate, people want to have a certain experience of prayer, and the experience is essentially an ascetic one. It's emotional one. You, put, you give people the exact translation of prayers that were written, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago in the Middle Ages, 500 years ago before modernity. They won't agree with most of it. And it'll, it'll sound stilted because those prayers were not intended to be translated into modern English. We get a feeling, positive feeling about them if we do them in Hebrew. But once you translate them into English, you lose the entire impact. So I argued that the English in our prayer books should provide for the worshiper what the Hebrew did for the worshiper once upon a time, which means that it would have to be emotional, it would have to be poetic, it would have to get the general sense of the Hebrew. If it's about peace, good, put something in about peace. Where there are some lines that you can draw upon, you can mostly follow the translation. But I wouldn't worry so much, I said, about making sure that everyone knew what the translation was. When we did uh, Mishkan, ha, Mishkan ha, Filah, I was on the small subcommittee that did the final work on the, on the book. We were charged with giving an accurate translation of each prayer. Uh, I was not necessarily in favor of it because I said, then people are going to read it. And if they read it, first of all, they won't agree with it. Second of all, it won't be poetic. And third, they'll not have a positive experience of it. So why bother? However, I conceded that if we wanted it there, so you could point to it if you're teaching from the prayer book, say, look, that's what it really means. Okay. People would tend to use the left-hand side of the page, I thought. The left-hand side of the page provides the poetry and the alternatives that I wanted. But I insisted then on what you would call a spiritual translation, meaning a translation that does for the English worshiper what the original Hebrew did for the worshiper when the Hebrew had been composed. The writing of yours, or the, I'd say, editing and writing of yours that we use the most frequently here on this show and me in my life is Minhagami, also called My People's Prayer Book, which is, for the listeners, a series of books that provide in very great detail many different facets and ways into different pieces of liturgy. There's the translation, there's the biblical allusions, there's Hasidus, there's feminism, there's halacha, Jewish law, all these different ways in. What was your inspiration and impetus for this series? And what do you hope both leaders of tefillah and practitioners of tefillah, people who just want to learn, what do you hope that they get out of this series? Well, what a great question. When I was still a young professor, though I by now had tenure, I was a full professor, but uh, I was still pretty young. I hadn't been at the college too long. I had a conversation with Dr. Borowitz, who, as I said, was a mentor for me. And Dr. Borowitz knew that I was running around the country lecturing and writing considerably and having being on committees and uh, trying to have an impact on the college. I had, by that time, already become the director of the now Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music, 
which was a very important part of my life because I wanted cantors to be recognized and they weren't. So I wanted to bring cantorial education into the modern world. So I knew of something about prayer from not just the rabbinic perspective, but also the cantorial perspective. And I was developing my own theory of what prayer should be. And I still had this great fondness for the traditional siddur of my childhood. And having studied it, I could see in the siddur, the diary of the Jewish people, I've used that term before. I was taken by a, here's a story. I was taken by a man who I met in the downstairs, what they called the vestry room and old shuls, the, the downstairs kind of messy area was called the vestry room. And I was giving a lecture in a small town in Indiana. And the last lecture was a Sunday morning in this little vestry room and a bunch of people had gathered. And when I was finished, a man came up to me and said, I see you like prayer. Well, he was obviously listening. And he said, you know something about prayer book? And I nodded. And he said, me, I'm a prayer book myself. And I thought, uh-oh, what, what's he trying to say? And I don't know. And then he said to me that he had gone through, as I, he said, I went through Hitler's camps. And as other people came and went, and they died along the way, and I was still there, I was young and strong, I began to wonder what'll happen if I'm the only Jew left when this is all over. And I decided what I would do is I would memorize, I would memorize the prayer service and be able to pass that along. I already had gone to Shul a lot, he said. It was a reformed temple, but he had been raised Orthodox. And he said, I went to the Shul and I knew all the prayers. And now I knew a lot of the reformed prayers as well. But at least the Hebrew, he said, would die for sure. And I thought if I, if I could daven my way through, then I would be the spokesperson for the next generation of Jews who would rise after me. I, I just thought that was enormously touching. And I thought he's right on. Most Jews, you know, never had a sense of Jewish knowledge in its abundance. I mean, the average Jew didn't know Talmud, the average Jew didn't know Midrash, the average Jew didn't know much Hebrew. Even in the Middle Ages, we tend to overestimate what people knew. They didn't. The one thing they did know was the prayer book. They had gone, they went regularly, they knew the prayers. So I thought of the prayer book as kind of an hourglass where all of Jewish tradition is poured in from the top, you know, like a funnel, and it funnels down to us. And so the prayer book was the way all of this Jewish knowledge and Jewish understandings of the world, uh, it quotes the Talmud, it quotes the Bible, it quotes Midrash, that's how people got it. So I began thinking about, you know, what kind of, what kind of book might we have that would give that to people? Now, as I say, Gene Borowitz came to me just sort of at that time. And he said to me, you know, you're very busy. But I recommend the following to you. I pass it along as advice to everybody on your podcast. There comes a time in your life when you want to say, instead of spreading myself so thin, what really matters to me? What's the one thing I really would like to do? And then you start paring away the things that don't really matter, but you're just doing by habit. Then put more time into what you really care about. So obviously, uh, he was talking not about my family life, that, you know, I really loved my children and so on and so forth. That was another story. But he was talking about what we would call my professional life. I decided 
that I should have one project that he suggested. And whatever else I do, I would want to get that project done. So putting that all together, I decided that I would do some kind of book that would bring all Jewish opinions together. And here would be that, that funnel. Into the funnel would be poured a traditionalist understanding through Talmud. What's the Bible about? Uh, what's, a, what's, a, what's a feminist approach to this? How are some theologians, theologians thinking about it? There would be people from Israel and from, from the diaspora. Uh, there would be men and women and, and people of all ages. And there would be Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist people. It would be my people. So I went to Jewish Lights, which was thrilled to do this. Stuart Matlins, who was the director, founder of Jewish Light, took the position that there were some books that were just worth doing. He didn't care if he made any money on them. And so he said, look, we, we won't be able to make a ton of money on these books. They're not pot boilers that everyone's going to buy. Uh, and some of them, he said, uh, will be books that hardly anyone will buy if you're going to do the whole Sidur. I mean, it's one thing to write a book about the Shema, fine. But when you get to something called Tachanun and no one knows what it is, why would anyone buy that? So, uh, but he said, if you think we should do it, I'll trust your judgment. So he gave me a carte blanche. And with that, I proceeded to work my way through the entire traditional liturgy with everything from what the traditionalists say to why Reformed Jews had changed it and what modern people were thinking of various sorts. And then I thought, the way we present Jewish knowledge and Jewish books is utterly critical. I remember once being called to, to the uh, Union, URJ, but at that time UAHC, because they had a manuscript of the, of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, and it was on a folio size, I mean, you know, big, big book. And it took two pages to turn, two hands to turn the page, and it was very old. It was probably, they thought, from the 15th century or 14th century. They weren't entirely sure. Maybe even 13th. They didn't know. And it had beautiful pictures in it with gold leaf. I mean, the pages were even heavy. It, it, was, it was something striking. And as I turned the pages, I discovered that, there were, that people had written in the margins. At least one person had. I couldn't, I couldn't compare all the handwriting. It was all handwritten. But someone had written in the margins, even in this beautiful prayer book. We would call that defacing it, you know, but obviously that's how they thought about it, because this person was a rabbi who was adding his commentary to what he saw as the Jewish tradition that had been handed down to him. And then I realized that that's, of course, how all our books are passed down. If you buy what's called a rabbinic Bible, you get the, 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 you get the centerpiece, which is the biblical uh, the biblical account, and then all around the edges, you have commentary. Similarly, the Talmud is written that way, the middle parts of the text and commentaries. And then there are even commentaries on the commentary. So I said, that's the way a Jewish book should be composed. And I decided I would, I would organize the book so that the prayer text would be in the middle. And then we'd have commentaries all around the edge. And then that would take you to other pages to finish the commentaries. By looking at it, you would see, oh, look, this is the whole Jewish people. You know, it's my people's prayer book, not just my people today who study it, but it's all of my people forever and ever, as it were, who pour what they say about prayer into this funnel. And it comes out in this, in this book. And, and I'm very proud of it. I think it's a, it, it 
what I wanted to do. And I finished the, I finished the traditional Sidur. And then, of course, we did the Passover Haggadah as well in two volumes. And then the second thing, the next thing I did was a little different. And that was an eight, I think, eight volume series on the High Holy Days where I didn't organize it that way only because the Mahzor, the High Holiday Prayer Book, is so complicated to, to do it that way would be very hard. And I couldn't do the entire service. I could just pick various prayers. So I isolated various prayers, the ones that are most important in the high holidays. And I think there are eight volumes in that too. Well, I, for one, am so grateful for your work. And I hope that this podcast is a way to add to that conversation, to bring it into a different medium and to help the conversation move forward. As we begin to wrap up, I want to go back to a comment that you made at the beginning of our conversation about the quote unquote uneducated Jews in the back of the room during a tefillah service, particularly during the high holidays. But I would think anytime someone who doesn't necessarily think about prayer or God comes into a Jewish prayer service, this is a two part question. What ideally would you hope that person's experience is? Or what could that person's experience be? And what could the leader of the prayers do to help make that experience more of a possibility? I was attending a service once in uh, New York City. The, the synagogue doesn't matter. It was a very fine rabbi in Cantor, and I, I'd like to go there. Sometimes I would travel all the way in just to go to services there on a Shabbat Eve. I know it's a long time ago, and I noticed that somebody walked in the door. I sat at the back. Someone walked in the door. I would say she was a young woman in her 30s, possibly. She kind of looked around, wasn't quite sure what to do. And she uh, sat down. She found a prayer book sitting in front of her, and she picked it up. And I was watching her from some distance. And I could see that she didn't know what the book was. She wasn't quite sure what was going on. And everyone in the room felt that this was really a community. The rabbi and Cantor had created that kind of a feeling. But of course, all the people who were there were the people who I call regulars, people who come to that. And she wasn't. And she turned the book around, looked at it, looked up, closed it, listened for a while. The cantor was singing the everything in Hebrew. Almost everything was in Hebrew. And she left. And I've often wondered what she was thinking. Why did she come? What was on her mind? Why did she leave? How did she feel when she left? This is, shall I say, not a success story. So the biggest mistake we make is thinking that because we love it, everybody else does too. We do not realize how difficult it is to feel at home in, a, in an activity that culturally is not the norm, sitting around listening to Hebrew and people singing prayers. When you don't know the prayers, don't know what's going on, don't know whether you sit or you stand, don't know why you do either one, and you're looking at a book, which is something you would never buy off the shelves and enjoy. So how do we, how do we satisfy the very sophisticated need of people who are regulars, but at the same time, not just welcome people and say, welcome, welcome, but in some way actually make them feel welcome and feel a part of it. If we conceive of the prayer service as an exercise in identity formation, 
then we should recognize that anyone who feels left out will say, not just, I didn't like it, but, oh, this is not for me. I am not Jewish, or I am not Jewish enough, or I don't want to become Jewish, or that person I'm going out with who wants me to appreciate Judaism, I'm not even going to go out with him, her, them anymore. So uh, a lot is at stake. I have this notion, therefore, that we need to re-examine the entire question. And I don't want to leave you with the sense that I know the entire answer. So a good way to end the podcast might be to talk about the, the particular moment in which we, which we occupy today. If you think about liturgical change, you can see that following, as in the 1960s, as it were, there was a sort of mood that struck the country. We were writing, we were, we were now getting rid of the Union prayer book, saying that it was not sufficient for most of us. By the 1970s, the rebels of the 1960s were now growing up, and there was a sense of all these people had gone to camp, and we were realizing we had to do something new. And we were changing our liturgy, changing our music, changing our cantorial education, changing everything. And we weren't doing it alone. I've been in rooms where, in one case, a leading Episcopal priest who was involved in changing the Episcopal liturgy was talking about his experiences on his committee. And I thought, I was at that meeting, only it was a different meeting. But we were talking about the same thing for Jews. And I realized this is going on all around the country. It was a reformation. We all know that in the 16th century, there was a reformation in which Protestantism got formed. And though people don't always think of it this way, that reformation struck Jews, but only in the 19th century because we were in ghettos until that time. So the winds have changed, that it altered the worship and the liturgy and the religious consciousness of mi millions of people in the Christian world struck Western Europe uh, after Napoleon released us from the ghettos, and we got reform with a small r. It wasn't yet reform Judaism with a capital R. It was reform that ultimately became, ultimately became conservative and modern orthodoxy and so on. We then had a second, we had, we had that reformation late in time. That was our first reformation, and we became, I became a reformed Jew. By the time you got to the 19. To, the, to the, the time I'm talking about, the 1960s, which threw everything into question, the 1970s, where people from the East Coast moved dramatically south and west. By that time, the Catholic Church, as I say, was changing its understanding of prayer, and so were the Protestants, and so were we. And so we came out with a new prayer book, a new diary entry, if you like. Well, I think we've come to the end of that era, and we are now in an age of remarkable creativity potentially, but actually that era began before COVID. We just were not forced into it. Everybody knew that people coming to services were graying, that the next generation wasn't even showing up. Fewer and fewer people were joining synagogues and churches, of course. Fewer and fewer people like organized religion. And the idea of just attending services because you should, the way I had as a child, that's gone forever. And the number, the kinds of people that we see 
are all different. We now understand better the diversity in our midst. Gender-wise, in terms of race, we have so many different kinds of people coming in. Even the old definitions of who's Jewish and who isn't will have to go. We should rather be thinking about a rather fluid state whereby people are differently involved and at different levels and in different ways in what I like to call the Jewish conversation. I think we should conceive of Judaism as a conversation in the making in which we inherit a conversation of the past. And one is Jewish to the extent that one is involved in that conversation. The service becomes therefore a training ground for the Jewish conversation. How the question then is, how can we involve people in the Jewish conversation? And how can that training ground, the, the service, provide an experience that is so positive that they say, this is a deep conversation. I know there's more to it than this. And I want to be part of it. So now as we come out of COVID, we now, we now see that our congregations can be worldwide. We see that Zoom is not going to go away. The technology is just going to get better. And we're reevaluating what a worship service looks like. For every week, it seems to me, someone tells me I'm doing this. Is that all right? Is this, can I try that? Is this too wild? My answer almost always is only history will tell. But you can't wait around for that. You have to judge. You have to use leadership. If you think this isn't good, then change it. See how it goes. Let the people decide. They'll let you know. But I'm now advocating enormous creativity and trying to give worship leaders, the rabbis, the cantors, the lay people who care deeply about worship, I'm trying to give them the, 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 the tools and the permission to look anew at what our worship is. So if our worship is to be our people's worship, like my people's prayer book, you know, then we're gonna have to expand our notion of who is our people. And we're going to have to do worship differently in ways that we have yet to imagine. But I think all, all reformations are sort of like revolutions. When you're in the midst of it, you don't really know what to do, but you work at it day by day and the good things last. If we use this time wisely, we will wake up in a decade, or maybe even more. We'll discover that we have advanced the cause of Judaism and the Jewish people, and Jewish identity, to the point where it, it, it engages many more people than we ever could have imagined. Uh, the future is bright indeed. I just have to say, Larry, that I'm actually quite emotional now and really you know, close to tears here. And I'm so grateful for your insights and to be able to be part of this conversation with you today. When I think about that as of next year, that I will have been in conversation with you about this in varying degrees for 50 years. And it's really quite quite incredible. You have been such an important teacher in my life. I think that without meaning to, it was your teaching that brought me to my own focus of being a lover of the liturgy and of shlichut sibor, as I like to call it, prayer leadership. But thank you so, so much for this, because being able to hear how you have evolved and your ideas have evolved, you've really taken us all with you and worldwide Judaism with you as well. 
I'm so grateful. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pure delight. Thank you so, so, so much, Larry, Rabbi Hoffman, especially I have to say, there are a lot of people out there who are saying doom and gloom. They see a lowering amount of people who come to synagogue and they say it's over. And yet you are reflecting what I feel is that this is an opportunity to think about what are we doing and how can we do it. And I love the framing of Judaism as a conversation. And I want to reiterate, I agree, the future is bright. And I hope that this conversation can help inspire folks to go out and, and make those changes. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And thank you so much for listening. Our editing is done by Christy Dodge of Allaby. Thank you so much, Christy. Our show notes this week were done by Melissa Keenan. Thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you for supporting the show. Click the links wherever you are listening to this right now to read more, support the show, maybe get some of the books that you heard about on this week's show. And we can't wait to see you again real soon. Shalom, everyone. Shalom, everyone.